All right, so hello everyone. Thank you so much for everybody's here for joining. So even though the program tonight we're talking Yom Ma'ut with Rav Mike Foyer, I do want to start by acknowledging that uh, it's Yom HaZikaron. We just heard the siren here just uh, very, you know, about half an hour ago, uh, Israel Memorial Day. And I would like to first acknowledge all the students and alumni of ours who served in the IDF and I know there's one on here who's going into the IDF. So I want to thank you for the service. Yeah, and, and, and give him a, a bracha for, for Shai who's going in. And for those who served, really thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's an incredible, incredible mitzvah that you participated in. And I really thank you. And I want to dedicate the learning that we're doing tonight to those who gave their lives to serve and protect Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael. We will have you in mind tonight, and we wouldn't be here without your sacrifice. So we'll definitely have those holy souls in mind. I'd Amen. like to, yeah, I'd like to welcome my dear friend and my Jewish history Rebbe, Rev. Mike Foyer. And thank you so much, Rev. Mike. It's great to see you. I haven't seen you in, in too long. Just give a little bit of background about you. Uh, Rev. Mike Foyer holds an MA from Brandeis University and got his rabbinical ordination at Beit Midrash Sulam Yaakov. He currently lives in Mali Dumaim with his wife and five children, who are amazing, all of them. His yeah, life mission. Even after a month and a half together in the house, we're also amazing. <laughs> Hence the, the earphones. Uh, his life mission is breaking down walls to build up consciousness. Rev. Mike has pioneered a new approach to Jewish history through his pod- podcast, The Jewish Story. I'm a huge fan of The Jewish Story. I love it. I listen to it. I saw that there was a, a lead-up episode for 1967 that just dropped. And because I'm not commuting, yeah. I don't get to listen to it as, like, right as soon as it comes out. But I'm very excited. That's definitely uh, on my playlist. So I, everyone should check out The Jewish Story as soon as we finish, if you have not checked it out. Uh, he's also the co-author of a biblical fish, fiction series called The Age of Prophecy, which is also fantastic. And he's a faculty member of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. We give a special shout out to Pardes for allowing Rev. Mike to be here with me tonight, for co-sponsoring it. Rev. Mike, you want to give a little shout out to them as well for, for helping us out tonight. Yeah, for folks who don't know what Pardes is, um, we are an open, inclusive, and intellectually challenging Jewish learning community here in Jerusalem with programs worldwide, especially uh, opening up a whole bunch of stuff in North America. And I'm excited to say that despite the current very challenging situation, Pardes has been going strong. We've kept our year program not just afloat, but really thriving. And in fact, we're looking in the next month to end on a strong note. We have a whole summer program coming up. And if folks are thinking about learning opportunities for the coming year, I highly encourage you to send me an email at ravmikefoyer at gmail.com. We're going to have very significant financial incentives available for people who want to take next year to do some real tour learning here in Jerusalem. A lot of great opportunities, fellowships, focus learning, part-time, full-time. It's really a place that... Um, our mission is to open the doors of the Bit Midrash as wide as possible so that all of Am Israel can really get a taste of their heritage. And I have to say that it's a mission I'm quite dedicated to. So thanks to Bardes for letting me be here. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Yontam, my dear friend, for inviting me. And I'm excited to have a good conversation. Amazing, amazing. I'm so excited. And as far as someone to talk to about history and Yom Ma'ut and the significance of this, I'm super excited. So I want to start off with a discussion tonight about Yom Ma'ut with 
a famous quote, and I'm sure you've heard this quote before. Maybe some others in the audience have heard it as well. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? This is a famous quote from Mark Twain from back in 1899. And here's what this quote says to me. Jews don't follow the rules, especially the rules of history. Which is funny, right? Because we have these huge tomes of law. But we don't follow the rules of history. And all the more so when we talk about the return of the Jewish people to Israel and the establishment of the state of Israel, it is unprecedented, historically unprecedented, to the extent that it almost begs to be called miraculous. It's almost hard to describe it without using some sort of, some sort of language like miracle. So, Mike, here's my question just to kick uh-huh. us off tonight. How do you look at the historical significance of the creation of the state of Israel? both through the lens of the Jewish story as well as the human story? Uh, it's a really great question. First, I would say that, you know, that old adage that the victors write the history, right? One of the ways you can understand the difference in the Jewish journey through time and that of other peoples is that it's actually not true for us. Right? We've been a people who've been telling our own story longer than other, any other people who is still alive on the planet. And that story has been told from the perspective of those who have nominally lost, right? We've, we lost. We lost to the Greeks. We lost to the Romans. We, I mean, you bring the list, even though they're all gone and we're still here. At the time in which the events were taking place, it often seemed that we had lost. And so I would say that part of the way I understand what's happening is that we have a position of telling a story which is larger than the events at hand. What do I mean? You think you know what the story is about, but then if it's not over yet, you don't actually know. You like you read the Bible, you think that the project of Jewish kingship was a failure, right? There was a period in our history we had kings, didn't work out. You know some ups and downs, but basically, but then all of a sudden in the year 1948 in the secular calendar emerges a kingdom which is stronger and at this point larger than any kingdom since the time of Solomon. So was the story of kingship over? And that kind of answers the other part of your question, which is that I see the significance of the state of Israel on the human story level as simply an indication is that um, you don't know what a story is about until it's over. And don't ever be certain that it's over because the Jews have a staying power, which is nothing short of astonishing. On the more um, rabbinic side of the divide, I would say that it's very important to remember that we're a people that embodies a promise. We embody a promise between not just God and Am Yisrael, but between creator and creation, that there will always be a place in the world in which heaven and earth meet, so to speak. And the responsibility of Am Yisrael is to cultivate that place within ourselves, within sort of uh, the history and within the present sociology of the world in which we live. And that it has a physical manifestation in Yerushalayim in the temple. It has, uh, I would say, cultural and religious manifestations. But, but that's the promise. God says you do that task, and, and you won't just survive, but you will thrive. I'd say that's my 
my brief answer to what is a, a titanic question. Yeah, last, I did. I threw, you, I threw you in yeah. deep at the beginning there. Last but certainly not least, um, I would say it's also a testimony to the fact that we're, you know, as, as Mark Twain noted, we have lived outside of the model of history for quite some time. In terms of the way history is generally understood as kings and their wars and, and you know, sort of socioeconomics, etc., and the Jews have lived outside of that realm as a people for almost the last 2,000 years. The last 100 and 120, we've begun to step back into that. But our power is not so much in history as it is in memory. We shape our future by telling our past in a way which can create a people in the present that's equipped to navigate between what's happening now and where we want to get. And that's um, one of the great themes of, of the work I'm trying to do with the Jewish story, which is telling the story of the past in a way in which creates a people in the present that has the power really to take command of our future. And I see the project that we have the sort of great merit to be sitting in the midst of right now as one of the greatest expressions of that ability to use memory as opposed to history as a tool to navigate time. I wrote down a couple of questions here, but the first one that pops out to me from what you shared, what is the story about? What was the Havamina? What did we think the story was about? And then uh, what did we think it was about through the Middle Ages? And uh, how, how did that unfold as far as understanding what the story is about? And, and what do you think the story is about? It's a redemptive story. It's a redemptive story. And it's important to remember, as Rob Cook teaches us, there's always at least three essential scales on which that story takes place. There's the personal. We, we believe very deeply in the value of the individual human being, right? Every human being is a, is a world and therefore has their own redemptive story. One of the things I do that you didn't mention is spiritual counseling. And um, I find in my practice that helping people tell a redemptive story is one of the most liberating and empowering acts that I can do. So it's a redemptive story on that plane. It's also a redemptive story on the national historical plane uh, in, in the simple meaning of redemption. People that were scattered from our land we're now back and we're rebuilding economy and politics and, and military with all the very deep challenges that those things bring, right? Don't forget that in many ways, exile was a luxury. We didn't have to struggle with these both logistical and moral issues. But it's on an even more profound scale, this is a redemptive story for all creation. Yeah. We have a, a mission. We're a mission-oriented people. Our mission, like I said, is to connect heaven and earth and to help to actualize that human potential, which is the divine image in humanity. So when you say we have, we're, a, we're telling a redemptive story, our story is one of redemption, I, I get the sense that we're talking about something more than, let's say, for Africans in America and the slavery that they endured, that they would utilize our story and to say, okay, here's a story of a people who have rise, risen up from the ashes, come out of slavery and you know, come into greatness, right? That's... That, would that be a small part of the story, but it's a much broader kind of story about the redemption of the entire world? In other words, we are, our story is not just our story. Our story is, and not just to be utilized, per se, by another group to, to show how one rises out of oppression, but that it's a story that, that everyone finds their place in. It is a story that everyone finds their place in, which is why not just the uh, sort of African-Americans in the time of slavery, but, you know, here in Israel, um, last year, my wife was at a second Seder where Eritrean refugees who literally walked out of Egypt to Israel, right, were, were celebrating. And she tells this incredible story that one of the young men that was there when they brought out the matzah didn't know what it was. But he said, look, that's the bread of freedom. 
And everyone looked at him and said, how do you know that? It turns out that this young man had actually crossed the border from Eritrea into Israel during Cholmoy Pesach, I don't know, 10 years before. And the soldiers, the Israeli soldiers that found him, supposed to be Egyptians that were shooting them in the legs, right, gave him food and shelter, but they were in a military base during Pesach. So the only bread that they gave him, what did they give him? They gave him chocolate spread and matzah. And they said, here's the bread of freedom. You picture like, these like secular Israeli soldiers, like, here you go, here's the bread of freedom. Like, so on that level, for sure, it's a very powerful, and we're a people that um, has been vulnerable to what's called cultural appropriation on a scale which, you know, is like inconceivable, right, for the last 2,000 years. Nevertheless, it's also a very down-to-earth social project. And I think it's important to remember that, is that the world needs a center. And it's not going to be the type of center that Rome attempted to build, or frankly, that America attempts to build, which is a center from which you rule. It's going to be an anchor point around which the world can find its right sort of revolution, so to speak. And that's what I mean when I say that um, our task is to always maintain, to cultivate that place where heaven and earth meet. Because, you know, look at the world right now. We're in this crazy crisis of, uh, of you know, the corona, the COVID crisis. And um, one of the most challenging and sort of uh, enlivening elements of it is asking the question of, well, how do I reorganize my life? What's essential? Right? Everybody out there is like, oh, am I part of an essential industry? Can I go, I can leave my house to do essential needs. There's never been a more important question that's been posed to humanity than what is actually essential. Hmm. And our task in human history is to build a society around that which is essential. Not in the, the sort of uh, Maslow's hierarchy food, clothing, shelter sense of essential, but in terms of what is the essence of humanity essential, right? It's a challenging task and we haven't had an easy time of it, but I do believe that we're not only capable that we're, that we're making progress. Well, if we can put together a government, then anything is possible. <laughs> yeah, well, don't, by the way, don't, don't, count your, don't count your coalitions before they're hatched, right? This, this, we could be going to round four with, with, with a blink of an eye. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, even but that, not, I would point out to you, but by the way, even yeah. that is proof the whole world is struggling with the question of, of um, what's the meaning of democracy as a, as a political system today. And, and our democracy right now is working. I want, I want you to know that. It's working almost too well because it's perfectly reflective of the fact that we as a people don't know what we want. Yeah. If our democracy weren't working as well, we'd have had government long ago. The reality is, is that Am Israel doesn't know what we want, and therefore, there you go, that's what you get. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mean it's always pleasant, but I, I do want to sort of like give credit where credit is due. It's working quite well. Amazing, beautiful insight. Um, I want you to take us back through the lens of history to that moment when Ben-Gurion over the radio uh, announces the Hachrazav Medina. Which, by the way, everyone has to go on YouTube and listen to yeah. that tomorrow. It is like a fantastic, and the Shechianovi, Kiyamanovi, Ganozman it's like an amazing, amazing it's amazing. Day. I mean, I was talking to my wife, Dina, about this, how, what it must have been like to sit there and to hear that. You know, can you give us a little bit of the, of the weight of that moment? You know, what's, what's, what's that moment about? I'll tell you, Foreign Minister Moshe Sharit, who was actually, at that point, I think, still Moshe Shertok, describe the experience because you know they 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 were subject to incredible pressure just don't don't do it don't declare the state the united states was saying if you do declare the state we won't back you you know the whole world was against them the arab armies around them were poised to invade triggered by this 
declaration. And, and Shertok said it was like the experience of standing on the top of a very tall cliff in high winds, right? That, that, that the, the potential, the, the danger, but the energy and the sense of a moment in time. And, you know, this was really the greatness of, of, of David and Gorian who, as a listener to the Jewish story, you realize I have deeply mixed feelings about, um, which I think he deserves. But nevertheless, his greatness was his ability to seize the moment. And that shouldn't be undervalued in history. You can miss the moment. It does happen. And one of the great aspects of leadership is to simply say, it's now or never. And, and, and I feel that um, the decision that was made to declare the state and frankly, the entire path that led up to it was, was messy. It has, we're still paying for it in many ways. And um, I will quite literally fall down on my hands and knees and thank God that they did it, right? Because we have been privileged to receive a vessel with which we can really shape the world. You know that um, sort of the expression from Archimedes, right? Give me a lever and where to stand and I'll move the world. Hmm. Well, the way our history works is this, is that our lever is the Torah in the broadest sense of all the wisdom that we've accumulated down through the generations. But the place that we need to stand in order to move the world is the land of Israel. And to do that collectively, it's not just in the land of Israel as individuals, but it's actually within a sovereign, and we, we use the word state today, but I would say within a sovereign entity where the government, which is able to marshal individual action into a truly collective vision. Amazing. I feel like that moment broke the rules of history in so many ways. I mean, I've heard you talk about Arnold Toynbee, the famous British um, historian before, and, and the model that he had about, you know, how uh, we were fossils and yes. how we kind of came back. And once a fossil is fossilized, it doesn't grow yes. meat on it again. No. So we, 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 broke, we broke his model. Jurassic of, Park aside. Right. Um, you know, as far as Christianity's perspective of those Christians that believe that they were the new Jews and we would never come home. I feel like that moment just broke so many historical paradigms. Yes. And let's touch Toynbee for a second, because Toynbee has um, a, a number of very interesting structures that he uses to analyze history, even though many people dismiss him today. He was one of the last, if not the last, the great historiosophers. They had a whole philosophy of existence that he both used to understand history and that he demonstrated through history. And one of his great points was that civilizations die when they cease to worship the future and they begin to worship the past. But that ancestor worship is the indication that even though your civilization may culturally, economically, etc., continue to progress, right? you've already, you're dead men walking. And one of the fascinating things about sort of the, the Zionist period in Jewish history culminating in the, not just the foundation of the state, but really in the creation of a modern Israeli identity is that we went from a people who, who venerated the past on a scale which is like hard to imagine to in many ways a very damaging shift to like out with the old, in with the new, the new Jew, right? The, the, the deeply Nietzschean sense of a break with history and the ability to free oneself through an act of will, which had a lot to do with the sort of courage that was displayed by the, the secular Zionist leadership in making the moves that they made. But, but there's a very good reason that um, we should 
maintain that momentum, right? Even though I think that giving up on our past is a ridiculous notion, I think it's also an impossible notion, it's foolish to waste that wisdom, and, but nevertheless, we need to remember that um, the old notion of Yiridat right? this idea of the descent of generations that the further from Sinai, from the source of Torah that we get, the lower in level we are, that's true. But don't forget that it's also the further in history you go, the closer you get to Messiah. Right? So, so it, that, is, that is part of the pattern that I see at this stage of history. Is we've turned a corner that we need to begin, to begin to appreciate the fact that we are drawing closer to a redemptive era. And we have to ask ourselves the very important questions, not just what does the past ask of us, but what's our duty to the future? Amazing, beautiful. So you're already kind of touching on the, again, on this idea of the redemptive nature of our story and the kind of the spiritual underpinnings of, of who we are as a nation and the importance of our story. So I would like to speak more about the spiritual significance uh, specifically about Yom Ha'atzmaut. And sure. there's an amazing piece in the Sfat Emet that we spoke about. Uh, the Sfat Emet is Rebbe Yehuda Aryeleb Alter. Um, he is coming to us at the end of the 19th century in Poland. One of the great lights from the, the world of Hasidut uh, was holding in all facets of the Torah. Uh, he, said, he was also a, a Lamdan, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Wasn't, wasn't just a Hasidic Rebbe. Right, right. <laughs> now he, uh, now his perushim on the, on the Gomorrah are essential. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So he says something very, very interesting. And he says the following, that we have three holidays in the Jewish calendar known as the Shalosh Regalim. And those are Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Those three holidays, the Shalosh Regalim, shine such an incredibly bright spiritual light, like the sun, that we as the Jewish people who are likened to the moon, we reflect that light back to God, so to speak, and through that, create rabbinical holidays. Now, each of the, the Shalosh Regalim, these three holidays, which are holidays from the Torah, they have a rabbinical equivalent, which is that response or that kind of reflection. Or chozer, in the Kabbalistic terms. So for Sukkot, the response would be Hanukkah. For Shavuot, the response would be Purim. Now, we could spend a lot of time going into why those so just, are. It's an incredible... It's an amazing discussion to see those connections. And it's not a simple thing that he says. But, uh, yeah. but Pesach, so Pesach says this, that's the one we're still waiting for, right? This is his time in the 19th century. In other words, there's going to be one more holiday, one more rabbinic holiday, one more holiday that kind of flows from within Am Yisrael, from the bottom up, so to speak, as opposed to the top down. And that one we haven't yet reached. That one's going to mirror the leaving of Egypt in this incredible, miraculous way. Well, not Egypt per se, but Galut, leaving Galut, leaving exile in an incredible and miraculous way. So that's what the Sfat Emet says. And we're waiting uh, for that third holiday to awaken us to the miracles. Now, there are some that have jumped on the boat and said, hey, this is it. Don't we see now that with the establishment of the state of Israel, um, this is the third holiday. Yom Atzmaut is the third holiday that we've been waiting for. This is what the Sfat Emet was hinting to. And, and it's a very powerful statement. It's profound, but it also has a lot of serious ramifications for those of us that love poiling in the books. And that is, wait a second, that's beautiful. Um, but you're telling me now that Yom Atzmaut is on the same spiritual level as Hanukkah? 
You're telling me that Yom Atzimut is on the same spiritual level as Purim? That's a bit of a, a leap. So I want to hear your feelings about this. Is this uh, an exaggeration uh, of the words of the Svatimet? Uh, or is this right on target? Yom Atzimut is exactly, in your perspective, what we've been waiting for, and this is it. So, so there's two pieces, and I'm sort of uh, debating in my mind which one to answer first. I'll say it like this. First of all, this, this structure of the um, sort of the Dorite and the Durban and the Torah level holidays and then the rabbinic level holidays is a very important structure to understand overall. Um, and in particular, if you look, both Hanukkah and Purim are historical events which the sages were able to extract an essential message and therefore elevate it to something that even when the relevance of the historical events themselves was no longer true. The second temple is destroyed, right? We're back in exile. Nevertheless, Purim and Hanukkah remain expressions of a fundamental relationship between Am Yisrael and Kodesh Baruch Hu, or even really just between creator and created. We can talk about what those are, but as you said, we're going to leave aside the, the essential nature of dark and light or the hidden and the revealed, etc., etc. So, so on that level, I would say Yom Atzimut has a lot of potential, but we haven't yet done the work. We haven't done the work because if you ask the average Jew and certainly the average Israeli, what's Yom Atzimut about? It's an independence. It's still, it's still associated with the, if not personal, at least close generational experience of like, whew, that was a brutal time. We made it. That's why the celebration is a very, I would call it Gashmi celebration without any denigration of, of like the barbecue and out in the, uh, in the parks and like, I'm just going to live a good life right now because the truth is I couldn't do it when I was fleeing from the Nazis. I, I couldn't do it while I was fighting the Arab armies and I'm going to do it now. So with, with real respect to that reaction, it's not sufficient if, if we're going to actually create a true parallel to Pesach. So and what's so therefore, well, the, the, uh, w- one moment, because, okay. because they, that, that is, by the way, when we spoke about what we we're going to talk about tonight, you know, your question was like, how should people celebrate Yom Ha'atzma'ut in the current situation? Yeah, yeah, well, and we'll get there. Well, I, but I want you to remind, remember this part of the conversation when we do. Okay, so, so, so before I get to like, what is that element, I also want to add the historical perspective, is that we have fairly decent documentation as much as such things exist from that time, that Hanukkah wasn't really celebrated as a national holiday until the time of Herod. So we're talking about, you know, 100, 150 years after the Maccabean Revolt. And not only that, it seems that even then, it was far from clear what the story was. I mean, you and I have spent many, many hours speaking about Hanukkah, if people are curious, it happens that my father's yard site falls out right by Hanukkah. So every year I give a sheer devoted to this topic. Um, you can send me an email. I'll share that stuff with you. But my point is, is that it took quite some time for not only the spiritual elite and the leadership of that time, but for the people to process within their historical experience, what is the real message of Hanukkah? What, what is, even once the temple is destroyed, what is it about the experience of Purim? that carries an essential part of our relationship. And so now our hope here in the land of Israel, now in the state of Israel, is that we won't have to experience exile again. 
But I would say if we don't want to experience exile again, then we need to dig deeply within ourselves and figure out um, what is the parallel to freedom. You know, and because the, the liberation from the throwing off the yoke of foreign rule, the escape from exile must be sort of joined to the freedom of, right? The ability to deeply articulate some aspect of personal and national and even sort of all of creation's selfhood, which was truly subjugated. And that is the question that we have right now. What is the portion of ourselves which was otherwise unavailable or at least under subjugation, which we can now give expression, which is essential to our mission as a people in the world? If you think I'm going to answer that question right now, you're wrong. <laughs> but I'm here. <laughs> uh, but I, this idea that, you know, on a simple level, we need kind of time just to digest this. But on another level, um, you know, speaking about the parallelism between Pesach and Yom Ma'ut, uh, Pesach was exactly that. It was that freedom from, right? And But then that's yes. definitely not the end of the story, right? We have these seven weeks period that we're in right now this preparation towards that freedom towards. Uh, so it yes. sounds like we're kind of waiting for the Shavuot piece to kind of come into play to maybe not necessarily as a top down, but uh, some sort of revelation as to where it is that we're going or where, what it is that we're doing. Well, here, here I will give you a little bit of sense of what I think is happening because I don't believe in coincidence. Um, I think that, that um, every experience in one's own life and historically is an invitation to either derive or create meaning. And so therefore the fact that Yom Ha'atzma'ut falls out during Sefirat Omen, it falls out in the heart of the process, can teach us a lot about what the essence of this day really is. Furthermore, notice the word Atzma'ut doesn't really mean independence. There is no Hebrew word for the word independence because frankly, independence in the classic Western sense is a non-Jewish concept. We don't believe in independence. We're completely tolui. <laughs> like we're completely dependent upon a Kodesh Baruch. We live, we understand that, that we ourselves don't exist as isolated, not as isolated beings, not as an isolated people, that we are an expression of a will which is all-encompassing. Nevertheless, Atzma'ut comes from what word? What's the root? We'll play a little game here. Etzim, Atzma'ut, bones, the, the essence. So, ah, good. So bones and essence. So therefore, Atzma'ut is actually better translated as self-actualization, as the expression of essence. And, and I would say that, that that's an aspect of freedom which is process-oriented. See, the, the challenge of the Pesach to Shavuot sort of like uh, poles is that we see liberation and freedom, Pesach, Shavuot, as essentially separate acts. Whereas I really believe that Yom Ha'atzmut comes to teach us that, no, 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 that, that, that really it's an ongoing process of self-actualization because we're created in the divine image. You ever get frustrated that you're not actualizing your potential, Jonathan? <laughs> We've talked about that. We've talked times. this many times, right? And you, you remember what my answer always is? And it's not mine. It's actually Rabbi Daniel, God bless him, uh, Daniel Cohen, our Rebbe, right? Who says you should feel good about that because your essence is, uh, is infinite since you're created in the divine image. So there's no hope to actualizing your potential. Right, but nevertheless, the task of the human being is to constantly 
strive. And, and, I, and I think that, um, that uh, that's what Yotam Atzimut is really about. And that's a very difficult message to absorb when its first iteration is, is being embodied by a culture that just wants a break, wants to sit in barbecue. And it's been a hard fight. It was a hard fight to get out of exile. It was a hard fight to, to, to create the state. It was, you know, but, but then to try to say, yeah, but this is actually a day about constant struggle. Now, it might be that the way in which you celebrate constant struggle is this is the day off from it. And we recognize that the other 600 and, or sorry, 364 days a year, well, Shabbos excluded, right, that we're striving, et cetera, right? And this is a day that we just celebrate and take it easy, fine, but it should be within the context, in my humble opinion, of recognizing that, that atzma'ut, actualization, which falls out in the heart of the sphera, of the process orientation of how we build the vessels that are going to be prepared to really hold the divine light, these are not accidents. Uh, this is amazing, and, and uh, we'll go into the, the last part I want to discuss with you about, which is how do we celebrate Yom Atzimut this year? Are there different openings and opportunities that are available to us? Uh, you said you don't believe in coincidence, and uh, maybe this offers us something that was not available otherwise that, that now we can step into, and especially if striving is the theme of the day, which is a very beautiful uh, understanding of that. Uh, what does striving embodied look like, like, and how would that look today uh, with us being isolated, you know, in our homes? I mean, it's a great, I mean, it's a great image. And, um, you know, I think we were, we were joking earlier, it might've been on the phone or, or sometime about how, um, basically the whole world has been sent to our room to think about what it is that we need to do with our lives. Yeah. Right? Think about it. I don't know if, we, if it, it, like they're starting to loosen up the, uh, the uh, closure right now, but essentially half the planet has been sent to time out. I want you to go to your rooms and think about what you've done and don't come out until you're ready to change. Right. And, and so uh, on some level, that's the invitation here, which is the, the and it goes back to what I was saying before is what's essential. That's the phrase we keep it, essential services. You're allowed to go out for essential purposes. But this is what we need to ask ourselves. What is essential? And not in the, like I said, not in that sort of Maslow's hierarchy, what do I need just to survive? But like, what is my essence? Because if it's something that is really my essence, then I can, I can find a way to express it wherever I am. You know, uh, furthermore, what I would say is, what am I actually grateful for? Because the, the reality is, is, I can do a barbecue on the beach in Tahiti. I can, do a, I can do a barbecue in the park in New York City, right? And I'm not disparaging barbecues, even though I am a vegetarian. I happen to be the best vegetarian grill chef that you probably know, um, <laughs> since I'm a very rare breed. Um, I do serve my children meat. Uh, the, 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 the point is, is that, that what is it I'm grateful for wrapped up in the opportunity that the very existence of the state of Israel offers me? whether I live here or not, by the way. And let's not forget that, is that, that, that the invitation and what the state offers is not exclusively available to those who live here because it has changed Jewish existence forever throughout the world, right? And so if, I think spending time figuring out what am I grateful for is a very important act and having that time. Um, and... What, what is really essential to me, right? And, and I would say last, but certainly not least, 
what am I going to do to preserve that? Right? Because the, the world which emerges at the other side of this crisis will not be the same as the one that we left, by definition. What it looks like, I'm not a prophet, nor am I a, a sort of political analyst. I'm not going to start hypothesizing about what is to come. But what I can tell you is, you know, you never go home. Right? It, it is, there is no going back. Yes, right. Everyone talks about going, going, going back to normal, going back. Right, but that's not, that's not possible. Not only that, but not, normal wasn't so great. I mean, look at the world. Like, we can talk about the environment. We can talk about uh, socioeconomic inequality. We can talk about Ami Israel and whether we're actually succeeding in our mission. Let's take this opportunity, people. Don't go back. Go forward. Figure out what's essential and, and put our energy into that. And I, if I could wave a magic wand and do one thing right now, I would sit the world leaders down in my living room and send my kids somewhere else and, 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 and give them a good, strong talking to about the opportunity that I really fear could be squandered here to, to on certain levels, reset and reprioritize based on what's essential. And notice what is our atzma'ut, what is our essential self that is waiting to be actualized. Beautiful. That's, that's that, what I see. That provided that's you know, a lot to to sit and to contemplate. Uh, once while eating that that uh, burger or soy burger or having a little Israeli yeah. beer, oh, some craft beer. <laughs> I get. I'm just excited to drink a little Israeli craft beer. Uh, I'm just checking whether the cap was still on there. No, well, it's. I took it out of the fridge. It will be cold by, by, by the time we need to drink that. Um, but that's some very deep uh, contemplation that, uh, that, that should take place uh, and introspection and bidud, hidbodudut, uh, yes. real meditation and contemplation that, that can come out. I, I thought of this question as well. I have a couple ideas that I wanted to bounce off you also. Uh, and I think the last one in particular really was, was influenced by my listening to your podcast. So let me share those with you. Sure. Um, number one, taking a walk, of course, with the masks and the social distancing and, and all of that. But, but uh, and this has to ties in with your uh, gratitude. You know, the day in, day out, when we're commuting, you know, driving quickly, taking the kids, that type of thing, uh, there, there's opportunities to miss the beautiful flowers growing this time of year. I mean, there's a shetach, there's an area uh, behind our place, which my kids, of course, have discovered, right, because it's within 100 or 500 meters, and, you know, and they're out there and kind of saw where they're bringing our two-year-old daughter with horror. There's like this big hill and the you brought our two-year-old daughter down. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Okay, but they, they've explored it all. But there's all these areas. And right now, flowers and uh, the laughter of a father, who knows. Um, there's areas just within 100 meters of our home that I really don't know, that I haven't explored. So here's a chance, with all the proper measures, to be able to just walk around the area that I sometimes run, run past so quickly. And, and, and stop and smell the flowers, for lack of a better phrase, to really appreciate and have that gratitude uh, with those lenses of Yom Atzimut and, 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 and the historical background that we spoke about and the, and the redemptive story and just the simple expression of being of, I'm standing in Eretz Yisrael. And I grew up in, you know, Florida, you know, understanding and appreciating our story and a broader level of being able to stand in Eretz Yisrael. 
know, um, last week being Yom, Yom, uh, sorry, Yom, Yom HaShoah, I was thinking a lot about Dina's grandmother, my wife's grandmother, who was a survivor. And to imagine explaining to her in the work camp where she was, um, you know, that in 1948, only a few years after she would be released, that there would be a state of Israel and that her great-grandchildren would be speaking fluent Hebrew, growing up, walking around the streets with tremendous smiles and laughter in the Jewish state. I mean, that's just, that's an amazing, you know, talking about contemplation, that's an amazing opportunity. So, you know, the point there would be to just, you know, as you say, gratitude, to take time to look at the little things. Um, That's one. Um, Certainly, as you mentioned, no constraints on eating or barbecuing. Um, I saw a funny meme. Whoever is making money off memes right now is is really oh, the humor is the humor is the, the best I think I've ever seen. Yeah, no question. So it was a pair of pants uh, that were open, and it said, "My buttons are social distancing." So you know, <laughs> sitting around the house all the time with all the food there, you know, whatever money is saved for people on you know whatever Pesach traveling we didn't do, I think I paid three, three times the amount at the grocery <laughs> store. So um, but there's certainly no problem as far as barbecuing and enjoying the shefa. And besides yes. eggs, I mean, the grocery shopping experience, with, which I know you and I both do, has been pretty normal. You know, the, the eggs was a bit of a challenge, but pretty, man, most everything is available. And, and that's yep. pretty amazing. So sure. the appreciation oh, yeah. of that is, is, is fantastic. Um, and then I think this is the last point. Again, this is the point that I think was, was somehow influenced by uh, learning from you, is jumping back to that Pesach comparison. So Pesach, we have this incredible, beautiful, unique mitzvah called uh, telling the story of leaving Egypt. And our sages insist that we don't just tell the story as it was, but that we have to live it. And just to quote the Rambam's beautiful reformulation of that, Right? You are obligated, we are obligated to show ourselves, to illustrate to ourselves, as if we went out of Egypt right now. So yep. to kind of extrapolate from that model um, and to utilize that and to, number one, tell our personal Aliyah stories for those of us who do live here. Um, as I mentioned just very briefly, it's not in any way logical that someone who grew up where I grew up ends up where I've ended up. Um, and, you know, most Cleveland guys don't get where you are either. So that's unique. And hey, hey, Cleveland represents, all right? Oh, okay. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Shaker Heights High School, not so much. Right, right. Um, tell, for those, as you mentioned, I agree that, that, that for those who are not able to be or don't, who are not here, who choose not to be in Israel right now, um, they can still tell, tell their personal stories from time spent in Israel. For anyone who spent yes. any amount of time in Israel, um, they have stories that have been incredibly impactful to them, and, and they can share those stories as well, because those stories wouldn't be able to happen without the state. Um, tell can, I share, can I share a story with you? Yeah, please. On, on that note, um, the, the hakaratatov that you're talking about, right? We usually translate hakaratatov as gratitude, but you know, in this case, it's important to understand it really means right, to recognize the good. And, and on a deeper level, it's critical to understand what does the word recognize mean, right? Like, remember, because cognition is not what you know, it's how you know. It's not that I, I know there is one God, 
It's I know the world in light of the reality of one God. Right? As a, as a, as a, um, as an example, imagine you're out for a run late at night and you see some like dark figure coming towards you in the shadows and you're starting to get a little nervous and the world's looking grim and sudden they, they step into the, the street lamp and it's your neighbor and you recognize them. Meaning you reconstruct reality in reflection of what you now see properly. Mm. So in light of that, I want to, I want to tell you a great story from my friend about, about what it really means to hockey or toe. So I, I have a dear friend um, and uh, the founder of the Land of Israel Network, as you know, is a, a fantastic platform for all kinds of um, audio work and, 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 and many other things. So, so Jeremy Gimpel, you know Jeremy, right, tells a story that these guys are building the World Judean headquarters. Um, and whatever, whatever the politics of the people listening, they just need to appreciate the depth of this story. As part of what they're doing, they're building this fantastic uh, building, which is meant to be a uh, house of learning for all the nations of the world. And they, they were contacted by a group, which at first they thought was just a standard Christian group that wanted to come build. Then it turned out during their conversations that it wasn't just a standard Christian group. They were German. And they weren't just German. They were a group of the grandchildren of Nazis who, in this man's name, in this man's words, who called up Jeremy, wanted to do tshuva. They wanted to do an act of repentance and a return to essential self by coming to Israel and helping to build. So Jeremy, it's great. Like, you know, you want to help us out? As he always jokes, it's like it's the best built room in the whole building. Right? So, <laughs> so, so there he is. And he's like over at the, at the building site. He's helping oversee and he's got an Israeli... Um, sort of, uh, you know, Kablan, a contractor who's overseeing the whole process. And here are these, um, these sort of young to middle-aged Germans on their hands and knees laying tiles and pipes. And, and he says to his Israeli foreman, he says, I want you to just imagine something. Imagine that you could step into Auschwitz right now. And that you could just go up to some suffering Jew who's literally in hell and just tap him on the shoulder and say, listen, Listen, I know this is, this is really bad, but just turn around for a minute. I want to show you something. And the recognition of the good which God has in store for Am Yisrael that would come into that wholeness of the picture. And, and I'm not trying to justify the suffering or to diminish. That's not the point. The point is that you don't really know what a story is about until you're able to recognize the next chapter. And so that level of seeing the fantastic goodness within which we live and recognizing, recognizing, coming to a different understanding of our lives personally, of our national history, and of really that relationship between heaven and earth around which creation revolves, that's the opportunity I think that we have in, in doing what you so nicely said, in, in telling our stories in a way in which ties the past to the present and gives us that energy of hopefulness for the future. That's beautiful. You uh, tied everything together so beautifully there. Um, uh, I think we should pause here. My last point, though, was to listen to a podcast by yours truly <laughs> on the War of Independence. It's a great way to appreciate and hear the story through your lens. Yeah, that, actually, maybe, you know what I'll do? I'll, maybe I'll go tonight and, and, and uh, put some of that stuff back out on my social media feeds so that people can get a chance to listen. Because, yeah, those episodes are about the independence. Are, are, they're good. I lay a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, and please, I know that there's some of our group who is going to be interested to hear more from you. Where can they find you, Rev Mike? 
So you can reach me personally at RavMikeFoyer at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at RavMikeFoyer. Um, my audio is all on SoundCloud. You can find me on Twitter, The Jewish Story. Um, you, my website is thejewishstory.co. Um, and in particular, I'd like to say if people have questions about the Pardes Institute, we have, even those of you, not just even, those of you who are in America, we're running a full summer program online for a very nominal fee based on the hours of North America. Uh, and again, once again, I would say that if you're interested in, in even curious about learning next year, we're putting forth financial incentives that simply can't be beat. So um, send me an email. That's probably the best way to reach me, RothMikeFoyer at gmail.com. And I'm happy to pass on any and all information. Thank you so much, Rev. Mike. With this, I will uh, I'll have you in mind as I have my Israeli craft beer this year. And I hope that next year awesome. you and I will get to share them together. I'll be thinking about gratitude. I will be thinking about what's essential. I think those are beautiful meditations. I thank you for your time tonight. It was awesome to be able to speak with you. And I wish you a Hag Sameach. Hag Sameach, you're very welcome. And thank you for the invitation. All right, Rev. Mike, take care. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jonathan. You're very welcome. Bye, everybody. Take care.